Okay, everybody, let's begin in the with a prayer here. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we pray that Your Your Word would be hidden in our hearts, deep uh, and, and lasting, that it would be there to change us from the inside out. Help us to listen, help us to meditate, help us to think, help us in our, in our hearts and in our minds to grasp what You're speaking to us, and please inspire our wills and our minds through Your Holy Spirit. We pray all this in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, you might uh, want to kill me, but I think actually I'm going to do one more on Abraham. So uh, it's just, it's taking, I always have this uh, bigger, what is it, a bigger appetite or whatever. My eyes are bigger than my stomach or whatever. You know, I, I see all these things I want to do, and then when I start to actually concretize them and make them into you know, actual lessons, it, they just become bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So we're going on uh, Abraham number four, and I think we're going to go to Abraham number five, actually. <laughs> um, because I wanted to get tonight into Abraham as, uh, actually as a heavenly intercessor and the communion of the saints and the intergenerational relationship between the fathers and, and the children uh, across of the saints cross generations. And Abraham is a key figure in that. Um, and I wanted to get into you. Probably some of you were very good and you read Luke chapter 1. Yeah. Well, we're not going to get to it. <laughs> probably not. So that will be the final. Abraham number 5 will be Luke chapter 1 and Abraham as as, uh, as our father in faith um, in the past, but also currently as a heavenly intercessor. That will be Abraham number five, but we're going to do Abraham number four tonight. But it's really uh, not so much about Abraham, it's an excursus. Okay, so we're going to take a little detour here because I think this is important to, to, to sort of go over some ground that we've already covered, wrap things up a little bit, and, and kind of summarize things. So remember, what we're doing, hopefully, in this class is we're trying to take the entire Bible, even though we've been stuck in Genesis for a long time, but we're trying to take the entire Bible and get a, get a bird's eye view of the whole thing. Uh, and really, in a certain sense, more than just the Bible reduced to a book. We're trying to look at salvation history. We're trying to look at reality. We're trying to look at what how God created the world and His plan for humankind and how He uh, uses these figures throughout salvation history to unfold that plan. So we want to do this little excursus. We're going to talk about the seed. Go back and talk about the seed some more. So this is... Uh, referred to as the seed threatened, or the seed under threats. Alright, so if we go back to what's called the Proto-Evangelium, which is basically, uh, it's the first version of the Gospel. That's kind of what this word Proto-Evangelium means. The first version, or the first enunciation of the Gospel. It's Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman... And between your seed and her seed, he shall strike your head, and you shall strike his heel. Now, uh, I've even broken it down into an A, B, and C. That's how specific we're going to get. So it's Genesis 3.15a, or 3.15b, or 3.15c. Um, and there's probably, I think, roughly three sections. C's probably got two you know, subdivisions to it. But generally speaking, you've got three sections to it. 
So if you look at the red highlighted words, they're going to be going through the next, say, 10 or 15 slides, looking at those highlighted words. So the first thing we're going to look at is, is 315A. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. The you, remember, is the serpent. And then the woman is? Eve. 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 Sure. The Blessed Mother. Okay, so I'm going to try to show you how, uh, you know, it, it very well actually be Mary. And not specifically Eve. It might include Eve, but it actually might specifically be the Blessed Mother. Um, now, my interpretation of this is very... I don't put a whole ton of weight on it. Uh, you'll, re- you'll read other authors who would say something like, well, the primary reference is Eve, and maybe the mother of Jesus is, is included in there, kind of as a subheading or a subcategory, um, along with uh, the elect people of God in general. Uh, other people might say, other interpreters might say, well, no, it's really the primary reference, uh, to, uh, the woman's primary reference is the elect people of God in general, and then you can have, kind of have Eve is in there, and maybe the mother of, of Jesus is in there too. I think the, you know, it's, it's just a how, you, how you look at it. I think the primary reference is actually Mary, and then Eve and the elect people of God are also included in there. That's, that's how I take it. But again, I don't put a lot of weight on it, and you guys can be free to think for yourselves and disagree or whatever, but this is generally how I proceed through this text. So, you've got you, I will put enemy between you and the woman. This woman is likely a few, why I say it's probably Mary, because I think it's likely a future individual woman. And it's not a present woman that's being spoken to, that's in the, that's in the hearing of this, of this prophecy, okay? It's a future individual woman. How so? Well, few considerations. And again, this is, you know, I don't hang a ton of weight on it, but you might see where I'm coming from. The seed of Genesis 3.15b, okay, this is the second part of our, of our verse, is likely a future individual child. Okay, so if I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, if her seed is a future individual child, then her is probably a future individual woman or the future individual mother of that child. Okay, that's kind of how I'm reasoning, all right? Uh, so then, how can we see that the seed of uh, 315b is likely a future individual child? Because I kind of got to argue that as well, all right? You just can't take that for granted. How so? Well, the he of Genesis 315c is singular, Okay, so it's not seed as in descendants in general. Okay, or okay. Well, uh, let me phrase it like this: It's singular, and that's notable. Now, it is the case that when seed refers to future, uh, a future multitude of individuals, it sometimes can be a pronoun. Sometimes can be used in the singular. Okay, so that's true. So it's kind of ambiguous. It's open, but nonetheless, it's notable to say that it is singular. So it very well could be talking about a singular. Uh, future individual child. Alright? Here's a second reason why I think that the seed of Genesis 3.15b is a future individual child. Genesis 5.29, and I've gone over this a few times. I'm very impressed with this verse. It's always stuck out in my mind for a long time. It implies that the lineage, the godly lineage that goes through Seth, because remember you've got Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain is the firstborn 
And it, in the scripture, the, the, the kind of lineage always goes through the firstborn, normally. But Genesis, we see that being reversed. That pattern is reversed constantly. Uh, so you have Abel, who is the just, and he's the secondborn. And you have Esau and Jacob. Esau is firstborn, but Jacob is the one through which the godly lineage goes through. Uh, and that's repeated over and over again. There's always these two brothers, and it's the younger one that kind of gets the better end of, the, of things. All right? But normally speaking, sort of like by the law of nature, so to speak, the firstborn is the one through which the lineage goes. Well, this firstborn son is, is, is a bad guy. And he's really a kind of a symbol of, of the reprobate and of the seed of the serpent. So we've got this cosmic conflict right off the bat between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And it's seen automatically right after Genesis 3. You've got the story of Cain killing his brother. So Cain is this, is this bad guy. Uh, he kills Abel. And then we have Seth, who's born, third third son. And Seth basically replaces both Cain and Abel, replaces Abel because Abel's dead, and replaces Cain because Cain has basically been rejected because of his sin. All right. So uh, you've got this lineage going through Seth, and then you've got this lineage going through Cain, and these two lineages are contrasted in the beginning, the first eleven chapters of Genesis, the Cainites and then the Sethites. Well, the Sethites, in, in that godly lineage, at some point, Noah is born. And as a child, his parents have this kind of prophetic intuition about him. And they say that, oh, this one finally at last will save us from the curse of the ground which the Lord has cursed. And so there's this idea that they're expecting now, in some ways they were right about Noah being a savior, in some ways they were wrong about Noah being a savior. Noah wasn't the ultimate savior, but he was a kind of a foreshadowing of the ultimate savior. So the point is, though, is that this godly lineage of the Sethites, it becomes clear in that verse in Genesis 5.29 that they were expecting an individual child to be born. Okay, So that they, they understood that original prophecy in 3.15 to be about an individual. Okay, And then finally, Chronicles 17.11 shows this to be the case, that the seed is an individual. Uh, and that really kind of clears it up beyond any doubt. I think I've written that down. Okay, so Genesis 5.29, Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one shall give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground, which the Lord has cursed. That's slide 4 38. Now on slide 5, we've got the quote from Chronicles. And we're tracing this seed... And it really becomes, it, it, it comes into focus most clearly in uh, the line of David and the prophecies that are given to David. So Nathan the prophet says to David in the name of the Lord, when your days, David, are fulfilled to go to be with your fathers, so David's dead, all right, I will raise up your seed after you, one of your own sons. So now we get, certainly it's an individual that we're speaking about here, the seed is one of David's sons. Okay? And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. This is a very powerful and clear messianic prophecy. So the seed uh, ultimately comes, um, comes to be seen to be an individual. And that's why I interpret it all the way back in Genesis 3.15 as an individual. The primary reference being a future individual messianic figure. 
Um, now, some biblical scholars would, would disagree with my method, so I just want to kind of give you the, the assumptions of my method. The assumptions of my method is that Chronicles is a valid interpreter of Genesis 3.15. Now, some biblical scholars would say, that, no, no, we can't assume that. We just need to interpret every book given its own setting, its own historical time when it was written, its own context. And Chronicles certainly is envisioning a future individual messianic seed, but that's not necessarily what Genesis 3 is doing. So that, that is how some biblical scholars think. I take a more, an approach that's more theological because uh, I, bring in, I bring the assumption that the Bible speaks with one voice that is written with the Holy Spirit and so that one book can interpret other books. Okay, so that's how I, how I approach it. Okay? And that's the kind of the more traditional Christian way of, of interpreting the Bible. Someone wanted to ask a question? John or, or Zach? Who is Chronicles written by? I don't know. If, I don't think we Do know, know that. When it was? I mean, I, that's gonna. That date is gonna be very broad. I mean, I think oh, probably okay. a lot of modern scholars would think Chronicles was written in something like the fourth century BC. Okay. Well, I was just trying to get the idea if this was one of those books written after the events had taken place. Uh, no. A book written before. Well, not the events of the, this this messianic prophecy about the seed of David coming. Certainly not. Okay. You know, it would have been written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. I mean, and if you know, if you're a Jewish, I mean, if you're you're a Jewish person and you don't believe that that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, I mean, it's all the more kind of an open question, I guess. Um, I didn't think of it like that, but yeah. Okay. So I'm trying to be kind of, you know, I bring faith into the picture that I believe in the scriptures that are inspired and they all speak with one voice. But at the same time, I'm sort of letting you indicate how a lot of modern scholars think, and you know, letting letting you be aware of my assumptions. And people would disagree with some some of the things that I'm doing here interpretively. Okay, so I think that this uh, this seed in in 315b is an individual future uh, person, a messianic person, and so therefore, I think that the woman um, is going to be a future individual woman. Okay. So the woman in Genesis 3.15a is likely the future individual mother of this future individual child referred to as her seed. And we can see, now that's, that's grammatically possible as well, because uh, in Genesis 4.25 and these other passages, we learn that seed, it can refer to an immediate child. So seed can refer to, if we say, talk about the seed of Abraham, we can talk about his descendants in general. But we can also use the word seed to talk about Abraham's son Isaac. Isaac is his seed. It's the same. It's possible to do that. So this is slide six. Now we're going to slide seven, and then I got some verses to show you that that's the case. So here's Genesis four twenty-five. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth. Seth replaces both Cain and Abel. For said she, God hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel. So here's this individual Seth, and he is the seed. All right. And then we have in Genesis 38, which we'll talk about later on, with uh, Judah. It's a very, you know, the Bible, again, you, I think you know this already, but I'll, uh, you know, emphasize it again and again. It's a very kind of shocking book. It's very, it's very sexually explicit in many places. It's extremely violent. The violence are, I mean, it's, re, it's really over-the-top violence all throughout the Old Testament. So, you know, it, there's a scene with Judah, and... Um, what happens with Judah is that, and it's almost kind of like out of the blue, you don't understand exactly, the narration is going through, it's talking about Joseph, I believe, at this point, and then suddenly there's this story about Judah, 
And it seems kind of strange. What happens is Judah goes and he marries a Canaanite woman. And then he, uh, which in the, that was kind of um, pushing the envelope to begin with because there's a theme in Genesis about how the Israelites are not supposed to marry the Canaanites. And they're supposed to marry within the sort of godly lineage. And uh, so he marries a Canaanite woman, if I'm not mistaken. And he gives birth to this uh, his firstborn son, Ur. Now it says, it's very cryptic, it just says Ur was a sinner, was a great sinner before the Lord, and the Lord slew him. That's it. Again, very very cryptic. And so then uh, he gives birth to, he, he begets another son, and this na- son's name is Anan. Okay? And, uh, oh, Ur had married a woman. Okay? Uh, Tamar. And she was also a local Canaanite woman as well. And so Ur dies... Uh, leaving a, a widow behind. Now, uh, there is a very ancient practice uh, called the uh, Leverite, uh, called the Leverite brother, a Leverite marriage. And what that was is this. If, if I was a, a, a husband and my wife, I died without having any children, that was really a problem. Uh, who was going to inherit my land and who was going to sort of carry on my posterity? So what would happen is my brother... Even if he already had a wife, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I've got to check that. Uh, but my brother would marry my wife, at, or my widow, and then the first child that they had together would be my child, would be legally my child, okay, and would carry on my property and lineage and posterity in my name. Okay, that's, that's how the Leverite marriage worked. And then the second child, I think, was his own, was the, was the, would be the brother's uh, legitimate child, okay? So Ur dies and he leaves a wife behind, and so they um, you got he's got his brother Anan, and 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 Judah says to Anan, go and, and marry your brother's wife and uh, raise up seed for him, raise up seed for him. It's zerah. It's the same word that keeps appearing all over Genesis, and so Anan goes and he has marital relations with with uh, Tamar. But it says that he knows that his the seed is not going to be his. And so he spills his seed on the ground. And this is where we get the word anonism. Okay, it's basically in Latin, it's coitus interruptus, all right? And uh, it's, it's kind of a perversion, all right? It's considered a perversion in the scripture. But it, you have this play between seed, where you have semen, the seminal fluid of the man, and then seed as in descendant, but as in the individual child as well. Alright, so there's all these different seed is is doing duty for all these different meanings, alright? So that's where we have Genesis thirty eight. And then God killed him immediately. And then Anan gets killed too, yeah. He so, immediately, immediately, right after. I don't know, but yeah, he, he's 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 get, he's killed. The Lord slays him because of this issue. No, there's one question. I don't want to get sidetracked. Sure. Um when uh, when Cain killed Abel. Yeah. Why do you think it's subjective? Yeah. Why do you think that God didn't kill? Didn't kill him? Didn't kill Cain and let him go out into the world and nobody would touch him. Oh, why? Do you, uh, why did he basically like make him an exile instead of executing him? Basically, is that yes. what you're saying? Um, I don't know, but you know, a few things. I think that uh, things happen in history for very kind of almost accidental reasons sometimes, you know, yeah. uh, at, at our the level of perspective, our perspective. And then there's a kind of a providential 
uh, meaning assigned to those things, okay, at a level from like God's perspective. And um, probably, you know, God's, it was part of God's providence. That's how I would explain it ultimately. You know, it was part of God's providence. He, it was like Cain really was supposed to be this sort of, this, this progenitor of this ungodly lineage. I mean, that was, he was like destined to do this, basically. God loved I'm sorry? God loved Well, certainly, if you want to get into issues of predestination, free will, that God loves all human beings, these are big theological issues that we could talk about for a long time. Um, uh, well, well, your suggestion is that he, he spared his life because he loved him? Is that what you're thinking? Well, it's possible, yeah. Sure, in a certain way, yeah, that's a, that's a very, very valid thing. I know this, John Paul II actually meditates quite uh, extensively on that very issue. Why did God exile Cain and not kill him? And it actually tied into his whole uh, moral theology about uh, the death penalty. So John Paul II taught that, that states, modern states, it, it's in the best interest of everybody and it's the most humanitarian thing and it's reflective of the values of the gospel most preeminently to, to, to do away with the death penalty. Well, that did what, what made me think of just when we put the seed on the ground and it was taken right out. Yeah. You know, that's... Yeah. That's the question arises: Why didn't Cain just get taken right out right away? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, you opened up a can of worms here. There's a lot you know that you could talk about and comment on, but um, you know, then you have the mark on Cain. What's the mark on Cain? You know, it's a very interesting thing. What does that mean? There's a passage I was just looking at in Ezekiel, and in Ezekiel, God has doomed Jerusalem to destruction. And he tells these, he, these angels come out. One angel's got a destroying weapon in his hand. <laughs> and then another angel's got this pen of ink, like this ink well. And, he, and, and the Lord says to the one angel, go and mark everybody on the forehead who sighs and laments over the fate of Jerusalem. So basically all the godly people who were grieving over the fact that there is so much idolatry in the city, you know, they're on their beds and they're grieving and they're praying, oh God, why is this happening? those guys get a mark on their forehead. And then the people who don't have the mark on the forehead, the other angel with the destroying weapon, slays all of them. So the mark was a preservative. All right? But what's really amazing is that it's a tav, which is the final letter of the Hebrew Bible. So, so God says, literally, go and put a tav on everybody's forehead that grieves and laments over the fate of Jerusalem. Now, tav right now, uh, like as it would come to be written by the time... 3rd, 4th century A.D. was written in a certain way, not special. But when Ezekiel was written around 580 B.C., the Tav was formed like an like a cross. So, so he's saying, go and put a cross on everybody's forehead. I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, that's exactly what, from the apostolic time on, that was the earliest form of the cross that we did. We, we did that. So this, this form right here that we do was later on, was probably 4th, 5th century People, we started doing this, but the original cross from apostolic times was just that, like what we do with the gospel. So, I mean, then you want to ask what the sign of the forehead is. It goes back to Cain. So you take the passage from Cain, you take the passage from Ezekiel. In the apocalypse, there's the same thing happens. An angel goes out and he marks everybody on the forehead, and then they're preserved, and the people who are not marked are, are sort of doomed for destruction. So, Cain. Is, is in a certain sense he's he's a symbol of the reprobate, but he's marked on the forehead in a way that all the elect and the chosen are. Right? So, you know, these are these are interesting things to explore. You know. Yes. Well, anyways, 
My point here being the original one is that seed can be an individual, per, uh, the immediate individual offspring. All right. Oops. Now we're on uh, slide eight here. In First uh, Samuel, right off the right off the bat, we're introduced to Hannah. It's a beautiful figure, and uh, Hannah is barren. She can't uh, she can't have a child, and this is a great source of sorrow for her. She goes to the tabernacle, uh, basically like the 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 temple, the temple wasn't built at that time. They used sort of like a, like a makeshift temple at that time. It was a tabernacle. And she prays, and she makes this vow to the Lord. O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thy maidservant and remember me, and not forget thy maidservant, but will give to thy maidservant seed of men. It's very interesting. Zera anashim, seed of men. Then I will give him an individual to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Now she gives birth to who? Does anybody know Hannah gives birth to who? Samson. To, to, no, no, not Samson. Although it's a very similar story. It starts with an S. It's a prophet. It's, it, the uh, book is Samuel. Yeah. But actually, this same similar story happens with Samson as well. An angel comes to Samson's mother and says, you're going to bear... You know, there's this annunciation scene happens over and over again. We looked at Genesis 18. I call it the Genesis Annunciation. You have all these annunciation scenes of women who are barren, but then by God's miraculous power, they're able to give birth. So that's what happens with um, uh, Hannah. She gives birth to Samuel. And anyways, point being, I'm just drawing your attention to the language, seed of men, very interesting. Some Most modern Bible translations will translate it something like a male child or a son. Okay? That's slide 8 of 38. Now we've got slide 9 of 38. Uh, so this individual woman, though, can... Okay, so this, I think I, I have... I, if I've not proven, but I've, I've kind of given a good, decent case that um, the woman of Genesis 3.15a uh, is a future individual woman, the future individual mother of, of the seed, of that messianic seed. So that's what that's the primary reference for the woman is basically the mother of our Lord. Okay, if Jesus is the fulfillment of all these messianic prophecies, which I think he is, of course. Um, so this individual woman, though, can also stand for a group. So you have what's called what biblical scholars call a corporate personality. So you have an individual, and this individual is spoken about a lot, but then suddenly you start to realize that this individual comes to represent a, 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 a group of people. Okay? Not just themselves, but a group of people. So, um, this woman can represent uh, elect Israel. So, thus, the cosmic battle will be between the, the serpent, or Satan, and the elect. So, when he says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, he's referring to Mary primarily, but secondarily, he's referring to the elect people of God. Okay? And we have the final book of the Bible. We keep bouncing back and forth between Genesis and the Apocalypse. The final book of the Bible really sums this up for us nicely. In the 12th chapter, And a great sign was seen in heaven, a woman arrayed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Right, Twelve is a symbol of Israel. Okay, And she was with child. And there was seen another sign in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, now, the word dragon in Greek is dragon. That's where we get the English word dragon from. It's dragon. 
and dragon is a really, really, really big serpent. That's what a dragon is. Sometimes, when I was a kid and I, I read fantasy books and stuff, I always thought of a dragon had four legs and big wings. That was, you know. But actually, if you look in the ancient cultures, Babylon, but even China, all over the place, a dragon was a really, really big serpent, huge serpent. Um, so that dragon and the serpent of Genesis 3.15 come, you know, these two images come together very easily. So there is seen another sign, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his head seven diadems. And the dragon stood before the woman which was about to be delivered, that when she was delivered, he might devour her child. So that is an image that sums up the entire drama of the Bible. The entire drama of the Bible is this conflict between the serpent and the woman. The entire Bible can be summed up in that one conflict. And so here you have the, the serpent who's just sitting there ready and waiting. He's going to devour the child as soon as it's born. It wants to destroy the seed. Okay? The, the serpent does not want the messianic seed to come about because he knows from the prophecy that it's going to be that seed that crushes his head and defeats him. All right? And when the serpent has got our Lord in his clutches, so to speak, and gets him crucified, he thinks he's won. But the irony is the exact opposite. Because the cross was the very instrument through which the seed trampled and, struck and destroyed the head of the serpent. was through the cross. But the, seed, the serpent thought that it was defeating the seed when, it, when he brought Jesus to the cross and got him crucified. So, uh, slide 10 of 38. Because remember, you know... Um, what what is why does Cain why does Cain kill Abel? Like what's the vice that is motivating Cain? Jealousy. Jealousy. Absolutely. Or envy, okay? Jealousy or envy. And and then it's a very interesting scene at uh, when our Lord is on trial before Pilate. Pilate is a tragic figure and he's a sinner. And he's got his own kind of sin. His sin was a failure to take responsibility for his role. He was put by God, by God's providence, as the authority in that area, and he basically, what he did was he just basically, um, he was afraid of the people that he should have, so he subverted justice for the sake of keeping peace with the people. Okay, That was Herod's sin. Um, but really though, the people who handed, who got Christ crucified were, the religious leaders were the Pharisees and, and the scribes, and the Sadducees. And in one part in the Gospel of Matthew, it says that Pilate... Oh, I didn't say Herod. I'm sorry, not Herod. Pilate. Pilate um, knows that the Jews handed Jesus over to him out of envy. He knew that. He could tell. It was really obvious that this guy was a threat to these guys. And this is why these guys want this guy dead. And there's another passage in uh, John, I think it says, where... Um, the Pharisees were, were basically jealous because everybody was going over to Jesus and following Jesus and leaving them. And their credibility was diminishing and Jesus' credibility was, was, was increasing. So you see that same seed of Cain, the envy, you know, and it's manifest again in the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent is this perennial enemy that appears all throughout salvation history. Um, and then in the Gospel of John, Judas is the main guy that betrays our Lord, right? It says, as soon as Ju Judas dips the bread into the bowl with Jesus, 
Satan enters into him. And then it was night. It's very interesting. So, there's this... You can see that these, these human beings are basically being used as a tool for of the, of the, of the serpent. I thought Jesus dipped the bread and gave it to Judas. Yeah, that might have been what it was. Okay, I didn't know if yeah. there was a difference in that. But just, the point is, is, right after that that event happens, the devil enters into Judas. Okay, so uh, okay, now we go to Genesis three fifteen b. We're, we're we're making huge progress. We're still on one verse, and we got to the second part of that one verse. All right. So you've got. I, so I'll place them in between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Okay. Now your seed equals uh, the reprobates. All right, such as Cain. Uh, the daughters of men, which we read about in Genesis 6, uh, verse 2, which is kind of too much to get into, but there's this kind of mysterious verse that's got a huge interpreted history to it. Genesis chapter 6, it says that, uh, Now when men began to, uh, to multiply in the face of the earth, the sons of God looked and saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and each took uh, a wife, wives to himself as much as he wanted, something to that effect. And the question is, uh, uh, arises, who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of men? And the two main interpretations of that are the sons of God are actually angels, uh, and the daughters of men are just human, human women. And so that angels are mating with human women, and what is this? So that, that actually is one interpretive tradition. It's strange, right? And so the ancient Jews, it was actually the ancient Jews did interpret it that way. Uh, there was one interpretive tradition that interprets that way within Judaism. And some of the ancient Christians pick that up and, and run with it. But then the other interpretive tradition is that the sons of God in that context are the, are the godly lineage of Seth. And, uh, Seth, the Sethites are intermarrying with the Canaanites. Uh, and, and I, that becomes the kind of the more dominant interpretation. I think that's the correct interpretation. So I'm, I'm talking about the daughters of men or the Canaanites. That's how I'm interpreting it. Uh, and then you've got Canaan. What about that very strange passage with Noah? Again, these things that really raise your eyebrows. Noah is drunk and he, he gets knocked out and then Ham comes in and he does something we don't know about and then the other two, the other two brothers go backwards and they cover up Noah's nakedness and then Noah wakes up and then he curses not Ham, but Ham's son, Canaan. What's that all about? So I think there's this thing about Canaan and the Canaanites too because you see it over and over again about how um, the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they don't want their, to, to intermarry with the Canaanites. It's like stay separate from the Canaanites. Don't intermingle with the Canaanites. Uh, and so I, I think it's just a continuation of that more original theme of these two godly lineages, both of which should not intermarry. And if they do intermarry, what happens is there's a corruption of the godly lineage. The godly lineage is corrupted by the, by the ungodly lineage through that intermarriage. And that whole idea, this theme of intermarriage and don't marry outside the godly lineage, it keeps over and over and again all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, that would be a fascinating study in and of itself to, to study that. But uh, this comes to a head in Numbers, in the fourth book of the Pentateuch. In Numbers, what happens is this. We'll, we'll look at that too. Um, the Israelites are, uh, they, they exit Egypt and they're kind of at the end of their 40 year journey and they're about to go in and settle the Holy Land and before they cross over the Jordan they've got to go uh, through the territory of the Moabites and which were a local, uh, a local Canaanite population and the Moabites get really, really afraid 
and they don't know what's going to happen. They think there's maybe war going to happen. And so uh, the king of the Moabites, whose uh, name is Balak, he goes and he hires this kind of a fortune teller, this pagan soothsayer named Balaam. And, ba- and he says, Balaam, what I want you to do is we're going to get up on this high mountain. We're going to look over the, the, the plains here. We're going to see the entire you know, the tribe of Israel. They're all camped out. What I want you to do is curse them for me. And so Balaam says, okay, I'll, I'll curse them. Well, Balaam is, in a certain sense, even though he's a pagan soothsayer, he can be inspired authentically. And so he is inspired by the Spirit of God. And God inspires him to, to bless them and to prophesy blessing upon Israel and not a curse. And so we have the same theme of the curse and the blessing, the blessing and the curse, and that original promise to Abraham that those who curse you will be cursed and those who bless you will be blessed. Well, so that happens three times and Balak gets really frustrated. He says, Balaam, I'm paying you money to curse these people. What are you doing? You keep blessing them. And then finally what Balaam does, he says, well, I can't go. I mean, I, I'm, I'm an inspired prophet and I go how the inspiration leads me. And so he gives him one final prophecy. And this prophecy is a, is a messianic prophecy. It's very powerful. and we'll, we'll look at it. It's really incredible. It's about the star rising out of Jacob. And uh, it's, it's really amazing. But what happens is this. So Balaam says, well, you know, I, we, I can't curse these people, so what I'll do is this. This is, this is what you're going to do. You want to take these people down? This is how you do it. Okay. As long as they're on the side of their God, you're not going to touch them. But if you get them to sin, you got them. So what you're going to do is take your pretty daughters and send them into their ranks and get them to start, you know, uh, going steady with with the, with the girls. All right, and the and the girls are going to lead the the Israelite men to worship their gods. And as soon as that happens, the protect God's protection on Israel is going to be over with. And so that's what happens. So there's this issue of intermarriaging, intermarriages, and how that there's a corruption that takes place. Um, so, okay, so your seed, the seed of the serpent is the reprobate. Uh, and then that shows up in John chapter 8. This is our Lord, and he's speaking to the Pharisees, and he says, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth. Who was a murderer from the beginning? Cain. Cain, right? So Cain is a son of the devil, basically, is what? All right? And has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Okay, now, our Lord was very... He didn't mince words. I mean, really, he, his, his, the Gospels are really... Uh, he's got some tough things that he says in there. So this is, this is one of the... Um, Passages where you t- where you see the seed of the serpent coming out. Okay, so not only does the woman of uh, the first part of three fifteen signify elect Israel, but also her seed of three fifteen b signifies elect Israel. That's the other weird thing. So the woman is elect Israel; she can stand in for elect Israel. But also her seed is elect Israel. It's the same thing. There's a con- there's like a, uh, a collapsing of the two ideas. Alright, so if you go back to the Apocalypse, uh, then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her seed, on those who keep the commandments of God and bear the testimony of Jesus. That's Christians. Okay, those who keep the commandments of God and bear the testimony of Jesus. Those are Christians. Christians are the seed of the woman, but Christians are also the woman. 
Okay, so the woman and her seed are it's the same it can be the same thing. Alright. So seed can signify descendants in general, and that we can see this now from Genesis thirteen, sixteen and the other passage in seventeen. I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, right? So a multitude, it's many. So that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. So there's a multitude, right? Plurality of seed means a plurality of descendants. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee throughout their generations. Plurality of descendants. So you've got this word seed, and it just it can mean a lot of things. And then this word woman, it means a lot of things, all right? So now we're making real progress here. We're the third part of, of that one verse. So Genesis 3.15c. Okay, so um, I will place that into between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, now this is the, this is the kind of the hopeful part of the pro, uh, prophecy and the part that makes the devil tremble. He, uh, or you will strike his head and he will strike, uh, or you, I'm sorry, you will strike his heel and he will strike your head, or it's reverse, I can't remember which one it is. Uh, so I think it's, he, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Alright, so, he is the individual promised child whose strike against the serpent will be decisive because it will be the head of the serpent. You see, the head is enough to kill it, right? But I just read a church father recently who was, who was very clever. He said something along the lines of, um, when Jesus says, be wise as a serpent and be innocent as a dove, right? What does that mean? Wise as a serpent. Well, the serpent um, will do anything if, it's, if an, something is attacking it, it will do anything to defend its head. It will sacrifice its entire body to preserve the head and thereby preserving itself. Okay, And the point that the church father was making is that uh, for the Christian, our head is Jesus Christ and we are the body. And so we, we're willing to even die just so long as Jesus, our head, is preserved in us. Meaning that we're willing to die for our faith. That was the point of this church. Anyways, so head and serpent, this is, this is an interesting thing. So he is the individual promised child whose strike against the serpent will be decisive because it will be to the head. And then you is the serpent or the devil whose strike against the Messiah will only be at the heel because the crucifixion was far from a victory on the part of the devil. Rather, it was his undoing. We spoke about that, so it's a reverse. So when the devil uh, basically got it so that Jesus was crucified, he thought that he was killing the Messiah, he thought he had won, he thought it was this great victory, but actually what, that, what happened was that, was that was his downfall. And... Uh, so it really wasn't the undoing of the messianic seed. It was almost as if just his heel was bit. No big deal, because then he raises from the dead. And, okay, so now he's got. But that was the striking of the serpent's head, uh, meaning the total demise of of the serpents. Okay, so now we're on slide fifteen. Okay, so we've got this idea of the seed, right? The seed is primarily the Messiah. Uh, the the woman is primarily Mary, but they also stand for um, the elect people of God in general. Okay. So now we have this drama. It's a conflict between the serpent and uh, and the woman or the seed. It's this constant drama, and it plays out throughout the entire Bible. But it's seen really a lot in Genesis, very very clearly, because the word seed shows up in Genesis like forty times. 
And every time it does, it's something about this conflict, okay? So uh, the seed is threatened, and that's, that's the theme of Genesis. The redemptive promise of the Proto-Evangelium will be fulfilled through the seed of the woman. This seed is both an individual and a corporate reality. The rest of Genesis, and really the rest of the Bible, is a drama focused on the survival and realization of this seed. So, Cain kills Abel, but Seth takes up the role of the seed. Okay? Um, the devil hates human beings. He hates human beings. Um, so, one, one traditional interpretation is that, why does the devil hate human beings? Well, there's a number of reasons, but... Uh, one of them is the idea that it's after Satan was cast out of heaven, and he it says in the in the apocalypse when the devil is thrown down, his tail, the tail of the dragon, sweeps down a third of the stars of heaven. And the traditional interpretation of that is that when the devil fell, he took a third of the angelic host with him. So a third of angels basically, uh, you know, followed followed Satan in his rebellion, and. Um, uh, so there was all these empty thrones, basically. Okay, there's all these angelic, these angelic thrones, okay, so to speak, that were left empty, and human beings were created to fill those thrones. And so there's a there's an envy. The devil's envious of human beings because human beings were created to take the place of of him and his cronies. You know, so that's why he hates human beings. I mean, that's one of the traditional interpretations. So there's this kind of envy. So it would stand to reason that. Um, Satan thinks to himself, well, if I can corrupt Adam and Eve's first child, if I can corrupt him, I got it. I got the whole human race. Okay? And then this guy, this goody two-shoes Abel, let's get him killed. And then we got Cain, and so then everybody's going to be bad. Well, so that, that's the thinking. That's the, uh, the, the demonic thought process. Um, Cain kills Abel. Uh, the seed is... is is threatened, okay? But Seth is now the seed. So there's a third person born, and there's kind of a rejoicing because now this seed can become a possibility. Because, you know, the seed has got to be godly at least, right? So if you if you kill Abel and you corrupt Cain, the seed's not going to come. There's no way that the seed can be realized. Well, so there's a third child born, that's Seth, and that's the seed. That's the, now, now hope is restored because the seed whose existence was threatened is now a possibility again. So then you've got the Sethites, Okay, this godly lineage, Humam and, the sons of God in Genesis 6, I interpret them as a Sethites. Again, how, how to show that, that they're not angels, that's a really, really big uh, discussion. Uh, we're not going to get into that, but if you kind of just, I don't know, maybe trust me or something, <laughs> then we can, we can proceed. So the Sethites, they intermarry with the, with the Cainites, not the Canaanites, but the Cainites. And uh, that's the daughters of men, and thereby... They risk the corruption of the seed. So that's the other way that the devil tries to corrupt the chosen peoples by getting them to intermarry with this godless lineage. Now, the flood destroys all life on the earth, but the ark preserves the seed which will come through Noah. And if you go to those texts, I don't think I included them, but Genesis 7, 4, and 9, 9, it talks about how the seed is preserved through the ark. Um, And then, of course, we know the seed is going to come through Abraham. But as soon as that promise is given to Abraham, and this is where we can finally have someone read now, why doesn't someone open up to Genesis chapter 12 okay, and read uh, verses 10 through 20? So, Nancy, you want to read? Okay. okay. 
Yeah, chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. Okay. There was famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, since the famine in the land was severe. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sari, I know well how beautiful a woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, She is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. Please say, therefore, that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me on your account, and my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw how beautiful the woman was, and when Pharaoh's couriers saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. So she was taken into Pharaoh's palace. On her account, it went very well with Abram, and he received flocks and herds, male and female slaves, male and female asses, and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh with his household and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife, Sari. Then Pharaoh summoned Abram and said to him, How could you do this to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Here then is your wife, take her and be gone. Then Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him on his way and his with his wife and all that belonged to him. Now a lot of people read this story and they're like, what is going on? What is Abraham doing with this town as a wife? And I think the, the mistake that happens is people start getting caught up and I think I warned this on one of the slides here. Yeah, it says, do not get distracted by the question of the morality of Abraham's action, but rather note how this scene is prophetic of the Exodus. Okay, So the, the scene here, how it's functioning in the context of the broader narrative, it's not meant to talk about, well, what, what did Abraham, what did he do? Was it right or wrong? We can ask that question. But I think it's a secondary question. All right, But notice what's very remarkable here is this. Abraham's in the promised land. And there's a famine. Because of the famine, he goes down to Egypt. Now, at the end of Genesis, Jacob and his children, they end up in, in Egypt. Why? Because there's a famine in the land, and they can't. there's no food left, so they've got to go to Egypt, and there's all this food there. they got food that was stored up, so they go to Egypt. So there's a famine in the land, Abraham goes down into Egypt. Abraham gets really wealthy while he's there. Now, when the Egyptians, I'm sorry, when the Israelites in Egypt, when they leave... There's a big theme in Exodus that the, um, by God's blessing, the Israelites spoil the Egyptians and they come out with tons of goodies. All right, they got gold and silver, and that's what they use to make the tabernacle and all this stuff. So the Egyptian, uh, the Israelites come out of Egypt really wealthy. So does Abraham. All right, now uh, Abraham's wife gets basically sort of captive, captivate. Uh, you know, goes under into captivity, so to speak, by Pharaoh. Well, that's exactly what Israel does. Now, Israel is whose wife? God's. Yeah. So you've got this prophetic foreshadowing of exactly what happens in Egypt, and that's really the the deeper reason here. Now, um, if Sarah. Now remember, the promised seed has not been born yet. So if Sarah then became Pharaoh's wife, what happens to the seed? Yeah, it's no longer possible, right? So, so the, again, it's the main idea of this passage is that the seed is under threat. Okay, that's the point. 
The seed is under threat and it's prophetic of what's going to take place in Egypt. So uh, whether Abraham now Abraham wasn't lying by the way it was just you know it was it was a it was a it was a prudential decision that he made on his part okay because Sarah really actually was his his half sister you know you could call your half sister your sister okay so he really wasn't lying it was a prudential decision on his part all right um, so yeah it, the the seed is threatened all right now how else is the seed threatened in uh, Genesis. Uh, Sarah and Abraham can't have a child. How is this going to happen? So we're wondering. You know, there's this kind of drama. They can't have a child because they're advanced in years. Um, in Genesis 15, Abram says, "Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. Okay, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This man, meaning uh, this guy from Damascus, I can't Eliezer or something like that of Damascus, uh, which was Abraham's like." chief manager or steward. Um, this man shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. That's kind of an older-fashioned translation I was using there. So, um, so the seed is threatened by Abraham and Sarah's plan involving Hagar. Okay, so Abraham's got this, uh, he's got it in his head. Okay, it's definitely going to come out of me physically. All right, it's going to come from from my loins. Okay, this this promised seed is going to come from me genetically, biologically. But is it going to come from Sarah genetically, biologically? And then Sarah's got the bright idea. Well, how about I give you my my uh, servant or my slave Hagar, and you basically take her as sort of like a secondary wife, have a child with her, and then that's how the seed is going to come about is through Hagar. Okay, so there's this kind of a scheme that gets cooked up, and the birth is Ishmael. Um, now, was that God's plan? No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't God's plan. Uh, I mean, in one sense, maybe in a broader sense, God took it into account in his providential disposition of everything, but it wasn't God's immediate revealed will to them. His immediate revealed will would be that Sarah was going to, going to give birth. Now, um, what's the lesson here? Can anybody just think of the lesson? Like, uh, you know, so you've got this promise... And then you've got this, these, these two individuals, this couple, who then try to figure it out on their own. They're going to do something on their own way, you know, to try to figure out the seed. And then turn Ishmael results, but he's not the promised child. I don't know. Generally speaking, I'm kind of giving you the answer. But what do you think is what do you faith, think is trust, faith? Yeah, faith, trust. You know, um, do it on their own. Yeah, you, tower. Yeah, you can't exactly the Tower of Babel. Exactly, perfect. So it's it's you know you're generate your your code. Remember what I was saying about the Tower of Babel. And the vocation of human beings, man is called in general to be like God, uh, and that's there's nothing wrong with aspiring to be like God and to wanting to be like God. But the satanic uh, mistake is I'm going to be like God, but I'm going to do it my way. Okay, I'm going to do it on my own terms, out of my own resources, according to my own wisdom. And so that's Abraham and Sarah. They made a mistake here. So they had a vocation to be the progenitors of the promised seed. Okay, that, that's a true, they aspire to that, and there's nothing wrong with aspiring to that. Well, that was their vocation. But the problem was they're going to do it their own way according to their own wisdom out of their own resources. And what's produced is Ishmael, who becomes a type, another type of this kind of godless lineage or this, this reprobate lineage. So Ishmael, uh, who's produced out of that, is in a certain sense the seed of the serpent, another manifestation of the seed of the serpent. Uh, how do we know this? Very subtle, and you might not buy my, my interpretation. 
Um, but I'll just throw it out there anyway. So uh, after um, Isaac is born, the, pro- the real promised child is born. Ishmael's been around for a long time now. He's a young teenager, maybe 14 years old. Uh, it says, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had born unto Abraham, mocking. It's kind of a strange strange passage, but you got to put it in context, and when you do, you realize, okay, so it's... So Ishmael is kind of... He's, he's playing with, this, with baby, with a chosen seed here, with, with Isaac. Um, but it, maybe he's not kind of like innocent playing. All right? And Isaac, by the way, is also, as the name itself, Isaac is based on that Hebrew word there. It's Sahak. Okay? And it means a lot of things. It could mean laughter. It means sporting. Uh, it means joking around. But it can also mean mocking. So joking and playing in a vicious, uh, negative sense. Okay? And so probably there it means um, there is kind of a, a rivalry between the two. All right? And then St. Paul interprets it that way as well. So St. Paul in Galatians says, But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now. You've got these two lineages. In the Gospel of John, the flesh and the Spirit are contrasted a lot. So Jesus says the famous passage, those, uh, those, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Um, and... Uh, so Ishmael, because he's a product of that kind of satanic reasoning of we're going to go, we're going to aspire to our God-given vocation, but we're going to do it our way, just like Frank Sinatra, right? <laughs> you probably don't want to have that at your funeral. That's why <laughs> you probably don't want to do that. Um, so the you know uh, that's the flesh in the scripture, and the scriptural mindset is I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it my way, according to my own wisdom, according to my own resources. Uh, that's the symbol of the flesh. The spirit is the person that lives according to the promise, according to faith, trusts in God, relies on God uh, for the for the end and for the means of the fulfillment of the promises. So, okay, we're slide uh, twenty-one here. The word zahak can mean can mean to mock, and we see that in other passages in Genesis. So, there's the story about. Uh, Joseph, which is a very a very fun part of Genesis, you got this story of about twelve chapters focusing on uh, Joseph, who's the young youngest or one of the youngest of um, Jacob's children. And Joseph has got the the coat that his father makes for him. And his what what are his brothers? What's the vice that his brothers have towards towards Joseph? Jealousy, envy. Right. It's the same. So it's the same story. So. In that case, unfortunately, the, the, the sons of Jacob are now basically acting the role of the seed of the serpent, and uh, Joseph is, is the chosen one, so to speak, because he's beloved, he's loved by his father. Um, and uh, he, uh, they sell him in slavery, they throw him in a pit, he's prophetic of Christ, okay, um, and he goes into Egypt. And he uh, is bought by one of the chief chief leaders in, in Pharaoh's kingdom. And uh, this guy, he's got a wife, and the wife's got hots for, for Joseph, and she tries to seduce him, and he keeps resisting and all this stuff. She finally gets mad, and she frames it as if he was trying to go after her. And so what she says to the people that come in, she screams, and he runs out at one of these scenes, and she gets his jacket or something, his shirt, 
and she's got his shirt. She's like, look at him, he tried to, try to rape me. And uh, he says, he's brought among us a Hebrew to mock us. That's what she says. Okay, so just point, point being is that the word um, zahak can mean very uh, negative. It can have a negative sense. Okay, now, this is another interesting passage. This is in the book of Exodus, the sin of the golden calf. And which one, we, when we finally get to Moses, if, you probably don't believe me that we're going to get to Moses, but when we finally get to Moses, we'll see how the, the sin of the golden calf is really a, a very key event. Um, and uh, as a result of the sin of the golden calf, you've got this scene where Moses is up on Sinai along with Joshua, and they hear this, they hear all of this revelry that's going on. This, the, the Israelites are partying, you know, and uh, but it's it's idolatrous. Okay, it's sinful. It's idolatrous. And so the passage says, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to rebel. It's the hawk. It's the same word, the play, the sport. But it's got this negative and even an idolatrous connotation to it. Now, this is very interesting. I got this this targum, Jonathan, targum Yonatan. Now, what a targum is is this. Long, long time ago, going way, way back, okay, 2,000 years, just within the Jewish religion, uh, the the Bible, as it was written in Hebrew, was read over and over and over again. And everything we're doing right now, the Jews did to, to the nth degree. And they, they looked at every passage, every word. They labored over every single, you know, they'd look at a word, they look at everywhere it appeared in the Bible, and they kept, they would do all these mystical interpretations of it, just kind of how, what we're doing right now. Very, very profound. And what they would do is they put together these things called targums. And they were written in Aramaic, which was the, the broader lingua franca at the time they were written. Okay, and they were interpretations of the Hebrew Bible because actually Jews from, say, 2nd century and 1st century B.C., 1st century, 2nd century A.D. didn't necessarily always read Hebrew, even. Okay, they were more fluent with Aramaic. So Jesus, when Jesus spoke and he preached, he would have preached in Aramaic and not Hebrew. All right? So at that time, there was a need for a translation out of the Hebrew into the Aramaic. So you've got these huge things called targums, which are uh, translations of the Bible into Aramaic. But they're highly interpreted, highly, highly interpreted. And they're fascinating because it shows you how the Jews interpreted all these passages. And so, for example, in the targum, in Genesis 3.15, they talk about the seed of the woman as the Messiah, explicitly the Mashiach. Okay, so the, the Jews interpreted... Genesis 3.15 is a messianic passage, just how we're doing it right now. So in the passage of uh, where it says Ishmael is playing with or mocking Isaac, the, the one of the Targums and translates it like this. And Sarah observed the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she bare to Abraham, mocking with a strange worship. Mocking with a strange worship. So Ishmael is t- taken to be, you know, the seed of the serpent in a very, very extreme form, even an idolatrous form, right? So there's actually like this kind of a hint. There's this theme of idolatry that is brought brought in, and uh, it's not totally crazy. You know, that interpretation is not totally crazy. There could be these sort of a hints or nuances of that because if you look at how the word is used, it's used in connection with the sin of the golden calf which becomes this very central theme for Jewish thought and for the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible in general. All right, so Ishmael as the seed of the serpents. Um, that's slide 21. We're on slide 22. Now, what did we learn, not last week, but the week before that, right? What was the main scene that we saw? 
You guys remember what was Abraham called to do? To sacrifice, to kill, to kill uh, Ishmael or Isaac. And so we had we we studied the binding of Isaac. It's the supreme threat to the promised seed. Remember, the, the seed is under threat all throughout Genesis. And now this one is really, really threatened because it's Abraham himself who's going who's gonna to have to sacrifice the promised seed. So the covenantal promise that Abraham would have children was limited to Isaac, who is characterized as the only son of Abraham. This is a little bit of a side point, but it's interesting because it kind of, uh, it kind of vindicates St. Paul's interpretation of Genesis. And that is... Um, if you notice, you've got uh, Abraham has promised this godly seed. Well, Abraham has Ishmael, and then he has Isaac. Ishmael, there's not the promised seed does not go through Ishmael at all. Nothing. It only goes through Isaac. And then Isaac has two sons, Esau and then Jacob. It doesn't go through Esau at all. Esau is completely rejected. It just goes through Jacob. Now Jacob has twelve sons, and in a certain sense, the it goes through all twelve. Okay, so you know why is that? It's it's very it's kind of mysterious, but um, I think the lesson or one of the lessons that we have here is that it's not really about genetic lineage. It's really not about genetic lineage. Okay, and that's that's Paul's point in uh, in Romans and in Galatians, and that's why we as Christians can be real. We we are the seed of Abraham even though we're not biologically related to them. And that's Paul's interpretation of Genesis, and it's really kind of not crazy because you start to realize God's choice of how this godly seed is going to come to eventualization is not really governed by natural biological realities so much. Uh, remember, we've got the firstborn. Well, it keeps going not through the firstborn. So God keeps violating, if you will, the kind of the natural, the law of nature. In a certain sense, I mean, it was really probably more of a convention, but in a certain sense, a natural law that the inheritance would go through the oldest, okay, son. Well, God keeps choosing the youngest son, not the first, but the second, okay. And uh, why is that? And I think that's just basically trying to show us that God's ways are are supernatural; they're above the level of nature, and that nature can't bind God and constrict him and put him in a box. So much so that it comes to the point where we have Christians who are not even related to Abraham at all by blood, and they are, in fact, though, the true seed of Abraham. Well, is the only uh, first son then would be Jesus? So that, there we go, yeah. I mean, in a, yeah, I mean, that, there's, a, there's a lot to that. Um, I read an article recently, it would be something that I eventually I will corp- incorporate into this, is how the priesthood. Very interesting. You know, we think of the priesthood starting with the Levites. But there is a priesthood in the Old Testament that's before the Levites. So a very interesting passage caught my eyes years ago was um, when God is calling the Israelites to Sinai before the Levitical priesthood is even established. It talks about, he says... Uh, let the priests like wash their clothes, and you're like the priests. Wait a second, where are the priests coming from? The Le- Levitical priesthood's not even established yet. And what you realize when you start digging down into Genesis and the early chapters of Genesis, I'm sorry, of Exodus, is that there was a priesthood before the Levitical priesthood, and it went through the firstborn. The priesthood went through the firstborn. So from the beginning, just like that, there was this godly seed going from Adam through Noah 
through Abraham, through Moses, through David, all that. So also there was an external sacrificial system, sacrifice, and therefore sacrificial system requires a priesthood. There was an external priesthood right from the beginning. And it went through the firstborn. But Christ is the high priest. And then you have Melchizedek that ties into that. And so some ancient Jewish interpreters say Melchizedek is really Seth. Very interesting, right? I heard somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. A few, a few, uh, I'm sorry, you heard what? That it was Jesus. That it was Jesus. Well, it's prophetic of Jesus. Melchizedek is certainly prophetic of Jesus. Um, but you've got like three interpretations that Melchizedek was a local Canaanite king priest who was, who was, who probably worshiped the true God and he, he was prophetic of Jesus. He was a prophetic type of Jesus. Um, you've got a really, far out interpretation that he was a pre-incarnation of Jesus and I think that is like a very very you can find very ancient interpreters saying that but that really came within our tradition came to be rejected very strongly and I think it's not a correct interpretation Um, and then you've got the interpretation that Melchizedek is Seth that's a Jewish interpretation that some ancient church fathers adhere to but anyways there's a whole question about the firstborn priesthood um, and Jesus as the firstborn priest and uh, the firstborn, and therefore priesthood being outside the Levitical priesthood. So it's kind of like there was a firstborn priesthood, then the Levitical priesthood was like an interruption, and then Jesus was a restoration of that firstborn priesthood that was there before the Levitical law came, before the Mosaic law and the Levitical priesthood came into came into being. And there's a passage why I think that's really correct. I think the Bible is actually saying that. Is uh, there's a passage in Numbers and maybe in another passage, maybe in Deuteronomy, uh, but it says this: It says, "Take the firstborn uh, of all the families, count them up, take a census, okay, and then um, figure out how many are left, o- and then count the Levites. So you got a number of the firstborn Israelites and the number of the Levites. Compare them, and there was something like." Uh, I think there was a few more Levites than there was firstborn Israelites. And so there was a, there was like, there, there wasn't a perfect trade because they wanted to basically trade. And so they say, take the firstborn of all these animals and sacrifice them. And so it's like the Levites literally replace the firstborn. I have to show you the passage. Sometime we might get an opportunity to get to it. But it's really clear in numbers that God is commanding Moses to make the Levites replace the firstborn. So the firstborn were priests. And when Moses was put in the basket in the river, yeah, and that was once again to kill the firstborn. That's another instance of it. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to end on that. So it's again the seed of the serpent wanting to uh, uh, destroy the seed. You know, so it's that same image. Remember the image of the dragon, and, and he's waiting there. The woman's going to give birth, and the dragon wants to pounce on the on the child. So then it shows up in the beginning of Exodus when the firstborn males are going to be thrown into the river. Alright? So now this is St. Paul's interpretation. It says, For they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are Abraham's seed are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, it is not the children of the flesh that are the children of God, but the children of the promise are reckoned for a seed. So that's how St. Paul's interpretation of this is that how it's, uh, there's a supernatural reality. The seed is ultimately denoting a, a, a supernatural work of God. It's not 
a mere biological um, reality. And then there's an interesting packet, passage from First uh, Maccabees. Now, does anybody know uh, anything about the, the Maccabees and when the Maccabean uh, kings and rulers um, did their thing? Does anybody know anything about the Maccabees? A little bit, Charlie, what do you think? About the sons and, and, and all the torment that they went through. And, and oh, you're talking, oh, right, the, martyr, the famous martyrdom story? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 the main thing that I. That's think. what you know, yeah. That's what I yeah, there's a real famous story in Second Maccabees, uh, of these this martyrdom of these Jewish sons who refuse to eat swine's flesh and they they get tortured and killed for it, really, in a real vicious, nasty way. The Maccabees were this is very late on in salvation history. It's right before the coming of Christ, around the year 180 BC. So about 180 years before Christ. You've got this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, and you're gonna, you're gonna, we're gonna see him later. Okay, uh, how it goes is like this. Okay, you've got Babylon, which sort of ruled the roost. Babylon took over Israel and uh, subjugated Israel. Israel went into exile, and then you got the Persian Empire that comes along, and the, the main Persian king was um, was Cyrus, and Cyrus liberates the Jews and he sends them back from Israel so they can go back to the Promised Land, and they rebuild the temple and they get a fresh start. Um, but they're still kind of under the rule of the Persians. And then after the Persians, you've got Alexander the Great. Does anybody know anything about Alexander the Great? Alexander the Great uh, was a son of Philip of Macedonia, so he's Greece, he's Greek, and uh, he just got this idea in the head that he's going to take over the world. And he, when he was 19 years old, he had this, you know, this idea. He's like, you know what? I'm going to take over the world. Yeah, let's do that. And he almost did. Uh, he took over a huge, his empire was massive and, he, and, and it was really quite remarkable. So he's one of the most famous people in, in secular history because his military expeditions were just so grandiose and huge. Well, after Alexander dies, his kingdom kind of gets broken up into these four or five different sections. One of the set, select, uh, sections is the Seleucid kingdom. And the Seleucids, these are, these are uh, Alexander's generals. And one of his generals um, you know, has this lineage, this kind of dynasty, and uh, it's Antiochus IV is one in this lineage. Antiochus IV is infamous in the Bible because what he does is this. He's in competition with one of these other breakaway groups from, from Alexander's kingdom. And uh, it's, uh, it's in the, the Ptolemies in Egypt. Um, anyways, uh, Antiochus, this is around the year 180 or so, he goes, he loses a battle against the, this, this one southern faction of, the, of Alexander's kingdom. And he's mad, and as he, he's going back to his home, and as he passes through Palestine, he decides to pick on, on the, the Jews. And he, uh, and he goes, and it's just horrendous persecution, and he attacks the temple, and he tears down the altar in the temple, and he sets up this other altar, and they start sacrificing swine on it, and they dedicate the temple to Zeus. And uh, they they have the women and like they, they don't allow the mothers to circumcise their children. They burn all these Torah scrolls. You know they burn the Bible, and they um, they do like one of the famous incidences of the seven brothers who who get killed, tortured basically. And then what happens is within the Jewish people you've got this kind of split because you've got this accommodationist faction who say, well, you know, we don't want to die. Let's just kind of, let's, let's assimilate to the Hellenistic way of life. And so they give up basically their ancestral religion and they, they worship the pagan gods and they, 
they try to undo their circumcision, which I don't know how you do that, but anyways, they try to, it specifically says they try to undo their circumcision, and they exercise in the gymnasium like the Greeks do, naked. It's, and all that's supposed to be ridiculous from the Jewish point of view, okay? And so Antiochus Epiphanes becomes this figure of the enemy of Israel, par excellence. Like, there's no one as famous uh, uh, an enemy of Israel as this guy Antiochus Epiphanes. And um, he becomes a type of the Antichrist in the New Testament. So when the New Testament talks about the Antichrist, this kind of figure who's going to come and he's going to be sort of like a false messianic savior figure, and the world, you know, basically it's the seed of the serpent who's going to all be very... Uh, enchanted by him and they're going to kind of follow his way and there's going to be an eventual uh, persecution against the church. It's going to be like the greatest persecution that the church has ever suffered. That That's all going to happen at the hands of this figure, but it's Antiochus Epiphanes who is the type of that figure. Okay, Just like there's a type of Jesus and a type of these positive savior figures, there's also a type of these evil figures as well. And so Antiochus Epiphanes plays that role. Well, here we have... Um, it says, Antiochus Epiphanes appointed inspectors over all the people and commanded the cities of Judah to offer sacrifice to the pagan gods, city by city. Many of the people, everyone who forsook the law, now these are the Jews who were like apostates, okay, who forsook the law, they joined them, and they did evil in the land. Think about the land, how important the land is right from the beginning with Abraham, the promised land, it's a holy land. Um, you know, you can't, uh, sacrifice. The land was so holy that the Jews felt that they could not actually offer sacrifices outside of the land of Israel. Okay, so but they they corrupted the land. They forsook. They they did evil in the land, and they drove Israel into hiding in every place of refuge they had. They drove Israel into hiding. Now this is a point that was made by uh, an author I read recently. I thought it was a good one. Is that even in Maccabees, which was written well before the New Testament, you see Paul's interpretation in a certain sense. Uh, right here, because the author of Maccabees is making a distinction between Israel and then the Jewish people in general. See, Israel is the elect. And then you've got the apostate Jews, and they're not even worthy to be called Israel. You see? And so uh, they drove Israel into hiding in every place of refuge they had. And so in the book of the Maccabees, the Maccabean brothers are the leaders of this, this righteous remnant, and they go off into the wilderness. And that's what we see in the apocalypse when the woman is there and she gives birth to the child and the dragon goes to get the child but the child's lifted up into heaven okay, and can't get, the, can't get the, the male child. And then the dragon starts pursuing the woman and the woman takes refuge in the wilderness. She goes into the wilderness. And the, the, the uh, persecution of Antiochus Epiphanes lasted three and a half years. Okay, It was three and a half years. And then that three and a half becomes important in the apocalypse. So it says, And the woman went and had a place in the wilderness prepared for her by God where she found refuge for a time and times and half a time. Okay, so three and a half years. And that's in the book of Daniel. So the book of Daniel takes up all of this Maccabean history and then the book of Revelation takes up Daniel. So that's how all of this gets put into the final book of the Bible. Father, I have a question. Yeah. When, uh, when Jesus went into the wilderness he was, and he was tempted by the devil, right, this is this is all for this. Did the devil know that he was the son of God? 
I, I think again, I'm going more on like I can tell you the interpret a, tr- a traditional interpretation, uh, which is probably right, um, is uh, that the devil did not have full understanding of what he was what was going on. He got, he he suspected that Jesus was the Messiah, but he didn't understand Jesus to be the Son of God in the full creedal sense. Creedal sense, like how we profess Jesus to be the Son of God in the Nicene Creed. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, the eternal Son of God, begotten of the Father, co-equal with the Father, one of the one of the persons of the Blessed Trinity. Yet, you know, the, the devil didn't have that kind of an understanding of who, but he 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 had a he had a guess that this guy was the this one threw me off the Messiah. It, it is said that you would get you know legions when you would stub your toe. Yeah, you know, and so and I always thought well. It, the devil knew that was the Son of God. Yeah. Was pre-fire. I mean, he thought he could get him. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, he thought he could get him. Yeah. He didn't. That, I mean, so basically all salvation history is a big trick of the devil. Like God tricks the devil. I mean, in a certain sense. It's a big delu- I mean, the devil tricks himself. He's delusional. But he's, yeah, he, he makes an error of judgment. Because when he was thrown out of heaven, he didn't know that, he, that God was going to become incarnate. Incarnate. So Jesus was the ace and all. He had no idea. Yeah. That's why he, <laughs> he didn't know. He, was, he didn't know the fullness of what he, he was doing. He was going to, yeah, he right. He was going to, right. And it says to the ancient fathers. In fact, one of the one of the disciples of the apostles, uh, the, the, one of the early bishops of Antioch, Ignatius of Antioch, says in one of his epistles, we've got it extant. It's, it's a wonderful epistle. He says that. Mary's conception and her giving birth and uh, were both hidden from the devil. And then the mystery of redemption as well was hidden from the devil. So the devil didn't fully, if, if Ignatius is correct, the devil didn't really understand the, the virginal conception. And Joseph was there as like a cover. Okay, so Mary had a husband and just like everybody in Nazareth would have thought that Jesus was Joseph's natural son, so also the devil thought. Because he's just a creation. He thought he was just a creature. Yeah. He didn't. He didn't fully understand that he was God. Yeah. He's just a creation. Yeah. Okay. So uh, moving a little around here, I don't know if we're going to get to the end here. So uh, when the dragon saw that he had, that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had borne the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. And uh, so the place of the desert is a place of nourishment. That's where we're at right now in Advent, everybody. Right? We're going to be, we're being spiritually strengthened and being prepared for the, for the holy feast of Christmas, but it's a time of preparation and we go into the desert. So this, this upcoming Sunday, we're going to see John the Baptist who prepares a way in the desert. And he's, we're, we're, so that's, we want to go to the desert to prepare a way. We want to get away from the noisiness. We want to meditate on the meaning of Christmas and what our Savior has done for us. And that's the place where we're nourished. It's, it's, it's life springing forth out of death. That's the irony of, of the cross. Okay, so the seed is threatened by the possibility of, of Isaac marrying a Canaanite. So now Isaac, the promised seed... He's, uh, he's received, he, uh, Abraham has obeyed God and has offered him up. And he's, but God gave Isaac back to, uh, Abraham. So it's all happy times, but the seed is threatened again because Isaac might marry a Canaanite girl 
All right, don't want to do that. All right. So, um, so this is what uh, Abraham does now with his servant. He says, "Put your hand under my thigh." Okay, strange, right? Because the thigh is going to be the loins. So from here to here is like this considered the kind of the central area of strength for a man. Which actually, I mean, it really is the back and the. But they, they in the Bible they use the word loins. And it's kind of strange, like what this is. It's it's the muscles, it's the reproductive organs, it's kind of just this sort of central part of the body, okay. And the loins are used to to mean a lot of things, like someone's, you know, the loins are like the center of the person's of the man's person. I guess is basically how you'd say it, you know. So you make these O's, and the hand is under his thigh, okay. So it has to do with. Uh, uh, the ability to reproduce and generate, okay? So, yes, the Bible is... I know the Bible is a little risque. It really is. It really is. So, put your hand under my thigh and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and, and, and earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. So, it's because it's about the seed. It's about the reproductive... the reproduction here. Go, All right? So the seed is also threatened by the barrenness of Rebecca. So the, the servant goes and he gets Rebecca, and there's all these providential events that take place that we know Rebecca is going to be the chosen bride for, for Isaac, and she's brought back, and it's, it's a, very, uh, a very nice scene where Rebecca sees Isaac from afar, and she's got, she pulls her veil over her face, and, and then Isaac takes her into his tent, and it says that he's comforted because of the loss of his mother, so Rebecca is like a replace of his mother and all this. So anyways, you got this nice little story between Isaac and Rebecca. But Rebecca is barren. So now Isaac prays to God and then and and Rebecca is able to bear uh, children. And she gives birth to two children. They're in her womb and they're struggling, right? So now when Esau and Jacob are born, uh, the sea is threatened again. Um, so Esau, you know, being the firstborn, the lineage is supposed to go through him, but he sells his birthright. For a pot of soup, okay. So uh, again, Esau is a type of this kind of carnal, um, unbelieving, just just godless person, all right, who takes something so grand, so important as like we were talking about. This is the seed. This is the seed. It's going to go through you, man. Like this is the salvation of the whole world depends on you. And you're like, ah, I think I want a pot of soup instead. <laughs> You know, but, yeah, but the, and that was it was through the mouth, right? It was it was what else happened through the mouth though? The first sin, right? It's the forbidden fruit. Yeah, it's forbidden fruit. So there's a theme of the mouth. You know, it's it's the belly. Okay, so like you don't want your belly to become your god. All right, you got to keep that puppy under wraps. All right. So. Um, so, anyways, Jacob and Esau are there. Esau sells his birthright. Uh, Jacob uh, is now going to be basically the one through whom the promise is going to come. Oh, we've got one more. We've got one minute left, huh? Well, so there's more threats to the seed. How about that? Let's skip through, okay? Um, yeah, lots of threats. Jacob is going to be pursued by Laban. He goes and he works for Laban for his for his bride. Laban pursues him. He's going to kill him. God appears to Laban in a dream. Says, "Don't touch him." Okay. Um, and then Esau, Jacob comes back into the Holy Land because he's away. He's been away in Mesopotamia. 
Esau, there's a rumor that says Esau's coming with 400 armed men. Okay, so now there's another threat that happens. Jacob, in the middle of the night, he wrestles this angel, and then the angel blesses him and says, you've prevailed with men and with God, and there's kind of this fortunate outcome of that, the, the meeting between Esau and Jacob and the next morning. They become friends, and they, they're, they're reconciled. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Uh, the seed is threatened again when Shechem rapes uh, Dinah. Dinah is one of is the only daughter of Jacob, and you've got this whole thing about this this potential intermarriage is going to take place. Uh oh, we don't want to do the intermarriage, right? And then there's this kind of gruesome scene where Levi and I think Reuben they go through and they they convince the Shechemites to be circumcised, and then they're sore the next morning and they can't fight. And so and so they get, they got them you know in their grasp so they go through and they slaughter them all and it's really nasty but anyways it's, it's the threat of the intermarriage and the threat of the seed okay so let's uh, just kind of go through a few slides here and kind of end um, you got Anan and the spilling of the seed so the seed is threatened again with Anan right and so let's see here we end up oh I want to do this prophecy from Numbers. Okay, so, you know, in the end of it is this. So this is, if you guys can just be patient with me, I'm going to go against my, my better judgment and just go over a minute or two. At the end of Genesis, uh, you've got all this envy, right, that sells Joseph into slavery. Joseph goes, becomes a big wig through God's providence, and he's in a position where he's able to help out his family. So then his family comes and he's able to feed them and they're able to survive. And so the brothers are, well, is Joseph going to kill us because... You know, we sold him into slavery. And what Joseph says is, Do not be grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. And God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant in the earth. And it was to save you alive by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. So in the, in the ultimate providential plan of God, this is Joseph's faith. He's able to see God's uh, working. And then after Jacob dies, the sons are even more afraid because they're like, okay, dad's gone, so now Joseph's really going to get revenge on us. And so they, they approach him and they kind of tell him a pack of lies and he says, no, no, guys, you don't have to give me a, a bunch of bull. Um, As for you, you meant evil against me. You intended evil against me, but God intended it for good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. So it shows how God can take human intentions that are evil and actually choreograph them and orchestrate them to uh, produce a bigger plan that's good. God brings good out of evil. And that's why he permits evil to take place, only if a greater good can come out of the evil. And uh, so uh, that's what's remarkable, is you've got all of these weird things happening, and that's the lesson, is that it's in the midst of human sin, and despite, and even through human sin, God's plan is victorious. And so this reminds me of a very funny anecdote about Napoleon. You guys have probably heard this before. I think maybe some of you heard this before. The story is Napoleon's taking over the world, and he goes down to Rome, and he takes over Italy and Rome. And he's and so now the, the cardinals and the people in Rome, they've got to negotiate with, with Napoleon. And Napoleon's not going to play any games with these, with these uh, priests. And so he says, uh, um, Your Eminence, are you not aware that I have the power to destroy the Catholic Church? And the cardinal, as the anecdote says, responds as your majesty, we, the Catholic clergy, have done our best to destroy the church for the last 1,800 years. We have not succeeded, and neither will you. 
<laughs> so we end off here. Um, we end off with the seed. They're not in the promised land. They're in Egypt, but they've got 70. That's pretty good. And then Exodus begins with a huge number of the Israelites multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. And Pharaoh tries to stop the multiplication process by doing two things. Number one, by enslaving and oppressing them. And number two, by throwing their firstborn babies into the water. So the seed threatened, but through God's providence and his plan, it becomes uh, finally um, successful, flourishing, and victorious. So that's it. Thank you, guys. Thank you for the It was the men, actually, so that they couldn't fight, which is prophetic of Mary giving birth to a male child, Jesus.